this semester we're looking at relationships. And it's something different than what we normally do. We normally go through the Bible uh, through a book or through a section of a book together. But this semester we're going to look topically at relationships. That means we're going to jump around. And last week what we did is we looked at the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, and how humanity was designed by its creator and how, as humans, we're designed to be in relationship, that we, we basically live in relationship and express humanity and all that we're designed to be in relationship. And so we saw that relationship is really what it means to be human. And secondly, we talked about the purpose of relationship and that ultimately your relationships are really kind of about this one thing. They're about the kingdom of God. They're about being God's people to the world and telling the world about the good God who's fixing everything that's wrong and being agents of the restoring of the world, both in people's lives and hearts, but also in people's needs in HeartWorks Academy. And so we're going to discuss relationships and we're going to get to nitty-gritty details as the semester goes on, dating and sexuality and marriage. But what we're doing this week, having kind of set a foundation last week, is we're going to examine what went wrong. And we're going to go back to the beginning again. We're going to go back to the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at Genesis 3. And we're going to ask the question of, if this is right, we are made to be in these whole relationships where we're supported and nourished and kind of fully human and complete in relationships, both with each other, in marriage, and also with God. And then also these relationships were about the kingdom of God. Then why is that not the case? Why are our relationships ruptured, and why are they not about the kingdom of God? What went wrong? And again, we're laying foundation work for the, last of the, for the rest of the semester by going back to Genesis again and looking at Genesis 3 and asking that question, what's wrong? Because if you're a believer or an unbeliever here tonight, it doesn't matter. We all agree on one thing. Something's wrong with the world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we want to begin to ask the question of why is that so? We're going to look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 21. This is the Word of God. Now the serpent was more, crafty, or was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be with us now as we consider what's wrong with the world and how we participate in what's wrong with the world. I pray, dear Lord, you would be with us. Our hearts are hard, and we find that in the scripture. It's hard to change. It's hard to be impacted by the things you have to say to us, dear God. If you're not here with us, we cannot change. Be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. The question we're asking is, what went wrong inside all of our relationships? As we look at Genesis 3, the first thing I want to see is there's, the first thing I want to say is there's typically two ways this question's normally answered. There's typically two ways we answer this question. There's a conservative approach and there's a liberal approach. I mean those terms in the broadest, whatever way you want to interpret those terms as possible. The conservative approach is what's wrong with the world is everybody else doesn't know what I know. What's wrong with the world is um, the North Koreans, Agmenejad, the homosexuals, liberals, Barack Obama, right? Y'all are laughing because I know this is actually y'all. <laughs> the problem with the world are these, are these people that don't understand what we understand. They don't know what we know, right? And that's not Scripture's answer to the question of what's wrong. And the liberal approach is not that it's everybody else's fault. The liberal approach is it's no one's fault, right? It's, you know, I can't judge you. You can't judge me. Yes, there's stuff wrong. Let's just work together and make it better, but let's not hold anybody responsible for their decisions. The conservatives want to just crush everybody because everybody else made irresponsible decisions. And liberals, in whichever way you want to interpret those terms, I don't care, don't want to hold anybody responsible. And really the two answers are you can either blame everyone or you can blame nobody. And one of my favorite pop culture writers, Chuck Klosterman, who you'll hear more about, says if you blame everybody, it's meaningless, and if you blame no one, you're just a coward. So we're going to examine the third way, the manner in which Scripture answers that question of what went wrong. And before I get into it, I want to say a couple of things I should have said last week. There are four men who greatly influenced my thinking throughout this semester. These are wise men that love the Lord Jesus and know His Word. Les Newsom, who's the campus minister at Ole Miss, a guy named John Stone, who works for RUF National Office. A guy named Jean LaRue, who's a pastor actually in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, where Gustav actually hit the hardest yesterday. And a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York. So I'm not going to say anything original. I'm not going to pretend to say anything original. And actually, my goal in teaching is to never say anything original. If anybody tells you something original, be suspect. My thoughts come from Scripture and also through the influence and the pastoral wisdom of these men. That in mind, 
We're going to look at Scripture and begin to ask the question of what went wrong, and then also, what is the relational fallout? First, in order to understand the fall, and that's the term that we use for chapter 3, the fall, the entrance of sin and evil into the world, we kind of have to start back at the beginning again. We have to start back to that kind of idea of relationships and kind of understand some of the foundational relationships that make up, essentially, reality. And really, it starts Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. And that tells us a lot about the world right there. And all throughout Scripture, we find similar comments in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. In Colossians 1, by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. What all these verses and all of Scripture attest to is that the fundamental, the primary reality, the primary relational, just foundational truth that we have to kind of begin to get in order to understand anything in our lives and especially to understand God in the world is this. God is the creator. He is the ultimate personality around which all of creation is oriented. He was before creation And everything that has been made, which is everything except for him, was made by him. And his livelihood doesn't depend on how you think about him or what you do for him. He was, and he is, and he always will continue to be. See, the task of religion and the task of theology and thinking things about God is not us coming up with some good religious ideas that we like. It's actually us telling back to God what we think we understand about him. He is the central being, the ultimate personality. And what that also teaches us, it teaches us something about us. We're created. We are his created beings. Our being, our existence, our humanity, everything that you are is contingent. It's contingent on his gracious act of creating and governing the creation in which we live. Our existence is contingent on his kind and generous work of making us. And I know this sounds really kind of abstract, but it's this foundational principle that really helps us understand reality because what it says is, He is God and we're not. He is the creator and we're creation. He is the ultimate unchanging personality and we are contingent personalities. And our existence depends on His will to create and to govern. And I know that sounds weird and metaphysical, but it's actually demonstrated in your life every single day. Because we see, we have this notion, you know, especially as Americans that are all independent and everything, that we have this huge, like, (coughs) this personal freedom, this libertarian freedom that we get to choose who we're going to be. Right? This is the American ethos. We we believe in self-made men, you know? And we have all this freedom, and, you, and the world is open for you. You get to choose who you want to be. But the truth of the matter is, is that the choices that you make in your life are extremely limited. That the things, the choices you get to make to shape yourself are minuscule compared to all the things, all the actual historical events that go into making you you. Where you were born was not your choice. You were born in this country, probably in the southeast, 
in the late 20th century. That was not your choice. Throughout all of the history of time, you weren't born in any other time. That means you had no freedom to be make choices about the 18th century, to be a farmer and a peasant in the 18th century, to be a monk in the 15th century. I realize this sounds silly, but what I'm saying is there's a world of possibility of where you could have been, and it was not your choice to be here. And someone sets you down here at this point in time. You don't have this freedom to shape yourself because you can never be a 13th century medieval monk. And that sounds ridiculous, but it's just true. Most of your choices were made for you. When you were born, to whom you were born, there's, what, 6 billion people alive today? God chose two DNA sets to gather together and make you out of the 6 billion DNA sets. And not only that, he did all the synapses when the, when the uh, DNA combined to make your specific DNA set. It wasn't your choice. And that's why you look like you look. It wasn't your choice. And that's why you begin to act and think either like your parents or the opposite of your parents because you can't stand them. It wasn't your choice. Your name. You can't even think about yourself without thinking of your name, right? To understand your identity. I am Britain, right? You're Ryan. You're Ben. You know? Your name is your identity. It was not your choice. Someone gave you that name. Someone gave you that identity. The set of choices before you. Education, career relationships, all these kind of things. There's six billion people in the world. The truth is, the kind of 300 people that you might get to know all had to be around you at some point. You're not going to interact with all those other six billion people. You're really choosing from a limited group of people. Even the way we think, you know, especially as Americans, again, we think we have this freedom to shape our lives and to become whoever we want to be. When, but the truth is, is we all think like upper middle class Southern Americans in the early 21st century. That's actually how you think. You can be historically pegged as thinking that way. I can be historically pegged as thinking that way. And when you say, when we all have an instinct when we hear about this kind of how we're constricted and put in this box, no, not me, like I'm a free thinker. I can think logically and reasonably. I can think outside of the box. Whatever it is, I'm not bound by my culture's way of thinking. Okay, that's a distinctly American thought. You would have never thought that way if you were born to a Maasai tribe in Kenya. Do you get that? So even, your th- even the thought that, like, no, I'm free, I'm not bound, that's an American thought. That was given to you by your heritage, by your culture. The bulk of the historical events that shape you were never your choice. And when I say bulk, there's almost kind of no way to quantify it. Because when you look out of all of history and all the possibilities of where you could have been, who you could have been born to, the amount of meaningful choices that are actually left up to you are minuscule. They're minuscule. And the reason why is because we are contingent personalities. Our life and our death and our existence, our significance is all contingent on a larger personality. And I say this because the essence of sin, the thing that brought sin and evil and tears and pain and frustration into the world and into our relationships, is the fact that in our hearts we have said, I am the ultimate personality in this life. We have in our hearts kicked God off the throne and said, I am at the center of the world. And things like parents and friends and relationships and boyfriends and girlfriends and religion are just supporting casts in my life. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, pride doesn't come be- does not only come before a fall, but it is the fall. The fall of a creature's attention from, where, from what is better, which is God, to what is worse, itself. And you see, in this text, this is exactly what Eve does. What Eve did was she knew God's rule, 
And Adam and Eve loved God and were in great relationship with Him, and they respected Him as God. And when Satan, or the serpent, came down and said, Did He really tell you to do that? And Eve said, He said we, we shouldn't do that, lest we die. And then Satan, the serpent, same thing, makes their case. What Eve did is she said, Here's the serpent's case, and here's God's case. I'll decide what's true. And instead of submitting to God, she now became the arbiter of truth and said, I'll decide what I like better. And she said, I'll decide what's lo- what seemed reasonable, right? This is good for wisdom. What feels right. What seems pleasurable. She uses our regular faculties for making decisions to choose to rebel against God. What went wrong is that in our hearts we unseated God as king. We unseated God as the ultimate personality, as the person in whom and for whom all things exist. And we have said, what is really central in my reality is me. And if you think about it, that doesn't make sense, but we love it. And that's why sin is characterized as folly. Romans one twenty five says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what they did was they worshipped and served the, crea- the creature instead of the creator. We orient everything in our lives around us, around the idea that my life is really about kind of manifesting reality toward my own personal happiness, satisfaction, and fulfillment. And this is illustrated a lot of different ways. It's illustrated in how we approach religion. We can see it most obviously and overtly in Preachers like Joel Osteen, who have taken biblical religion or some semblance of it and said, it's really about you getting yours. And the guy sells millions of books and fills up an 18,000-seat arena because he's taken biblical religion and said, it's about you, your best life now. The more subtle way it comes into our religion is what we've said, and when we look at the churches out there, is we've said, you know what I want? I want a church that entertains me. Cool music is how people choose churches now. And people are choosing to sit under the preaching and fellowship with a group of people for style and no longer for substance. Church is a place where we go to be entertained. They better do what we want, have the best stuff, whatever it is. We're not listening to the preaching. We're choosing style over substance in our religion because religion is about us. This is also illustrated in our relationships all over the place. Your primary concern in your relationships is kind of have your interest and your needs being met. This comes out in things like, uh, and and y'all talk to each other, and I talk to y'all, this sentiment, he hurt me, she hurt me, they did this to me, right? People hurt us. She makes me feel this way. He makes me feel this way. I don't care what people say. Because I think this, or I feel this. The if you loved me's, right? If you loved me, if he loved me, if she loved me, they would do this. In a dating relationship, I have to look out for myself. I feel stifled. He or she is checked out. All these different ways we kind of think about relationships are indications of the way in which we have said, all my relationships are about me. My primary concern in every relationship is my interest. And while it may even be deeply and harshly true that you've been hurt by somebody, there's no promise of relief from future relational pain 
then there's no promise for future relational restoration until you begin to think that the pros- about the prospect that reality and even your life and your relationships are about something bigger than you. Really the main point here is that the fundamental problem in the world, but especially in your relationships, is you. That we rejected God for self-worship. The problems in our relationships, my problem in my marriage, the biggest obstacle in Elizabeth and I's marriage to having peace and a good marriage is me. Elizabeth's biggest obstacle to having peace in this marriage is her. I have permission to say that. But it's really true. If you enter into, into relationships under the false notion that you're the ultimate personality in your life and in the world, that means that your fundamental belief about all of reality is always going to lead you into relational pain because you're working off the most foolish assumption in the world Namely, that you're at the center of it. That the world is about your happiness and your interest and your satisfaction. And if your orienting principle in all of your relationships is, I have to look out for my own interest, then you're preparing for divorce. Because nobody can fulfill all of your interests. And because you're not the center of the world. What went wrong is that we decided that we're the main actor in reality. And God is not. And relationships are about people serving our own interests. And so secondly, I want to begin to examine what is the relational fallout. In verses 9 and 10, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard a sound in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What first happens when we begin, or one of the things that happens when we live in that kind of view of reality is believing we're at the center of the world produces insecurity and fear. It introduces insecurity and fear in our, in our relationships. Security is being rooted in something so strongly that you can live fearlessly in the world. And when we're rooted in God, we have the strongest foundation and we get to live fearlessly, but we've rejected God. And Adam and Eve found themselves afraid and hiding in the garden. See, this is kind of last week a little bit. Man is a covenantal being. You're designed to be a covenantal being. And that truth really sits behind everything that we're going to be doing this semester. And what that means is we are meant to be bound to God, to reside in a restored and permanent life-giving relationship with God. He is creator, and we are his created image bearers, and it's in him and from him and to him that we live. But the fall severed that relationship. But the fall didn't sever, it didn't break our natural design and need for that fundamental relationship. So when our relationship with God was broken by our rebellion, the heart of man was all of a sudden untethered to that which kind of gave us meaning. And the result now is that our hearts are desperate for that covenant life-giving bond and they latch on to anything that gives the appearance of the ability to do for us what God alone can do. We look to the created things to be for us what only the Creator can do. And if you attach your life to that which is impermanent, which is anything but God, then you've consigned your life to a life of insecurity. 
But what, it is, what is it that you have wrapped your life around in order to find meaning and purpose and significance? The way to figure out what that thing is or things that it is, um, where do you devote your physical resources? Your time and your energy and your money. What are they devoted toward? They're devoted toward the thing that you think if you can get that thing, have that thing, not have that thing be taken away from you, you'll have meaning and purpose and significance in this world. You're covenantally binding yourself to the thing that you're giving all your money and your time and your energy. Where are you devoting your emotional resources? What draws out the most fear? What draws out the most anxiety? Where do you find the most joy? Though wherever it is that you begin to find those things, whatever it is that's stealing peace from you, is that thing that you're clinging to for meaning. And what you're thinking right now is the same thing I think when people talk about stuff like this. You're thinking, yeah, my resources are kind of oriented this way in this direction toward this thing, but it's totally reasonable. It's totally reasonable for me to kind of kill myself for this object because this isn't a bad thing. I'm not chasing prostitutes or using drugs. I'm pursuing good things like education or reputation, a good job, well-paid, right? So my resources are oriented that way. I get what you're saying. But if I was honest about all my time and energy, it would go this way. But I get what you're saying. And the things I'm chasing are pretty much really reasonable. Okay, that's what Eve said in the garden. She said, this totally makes sense. Of course I'm going to do this. It's not bad. It's not super evil. It makes sense. Where do you devote your resources? That's what you're covenantally binding your heart to for meaning. Ideas, accomplishments, moral reputation, lovers, peers, relationships. So what does this life of insecurity look like in relationships? It kind of does two things. First, we end up in relational idolatry. We end up crushing our girlfriend or your boyfriend with ungodly expectations that they're supposed to be everything for you. You may, call, you may end up crushing your husband or your wife with the ungodly expectation that they're supposed to be everything for you. And what it usually looks like is you kind of, you can't let go of each other, but you kind of hate each other. Y'all know, y'all know these people. We all know these people. I've been these people. I've been these people. Not with Elizabeth. <laughs> Relational idolatry. We end up binding ourselves to someone to give, using them to give us meaning. The other thing is, we actually end up having a lack of real intimacy. It, it, this life of insecurity will look like you have real friendships without having real intimacy because you're scared to death to deal with each other's messiness. And this means that when people kind of get into your business, you just close up shop. You don't want relationships to have the semblance of intimacy. So you might be in a small group Bible study. You might have a good group of friends that hangs out together, but you don't want to confront anyone because that means you have to do some deep soul-searching repentance. And you definitely don't want anyone to deal with your own messiness. And the reason why is because our confidence and our security is in the semblance of religious life that we've kind of put together and presented to the world. And our confidence and security is not in Jesus. And when those things that we cling to inevitably change, your world comes undone. When that relationship is lost, when you fail, whatever it is, your world comes undone, you're inconsolable. Because you see, 
there's one thing that stands in the way of all those things that you live for ever making you happy, and it's really this. It's death. Are you willing to admit that your idol has no answer, no solution for death? And I know y'all are 18 to 22-year-olds, and your heart and your brain and your body is in the best condition you'll ever be in. But if I do nothing to challenge you tonight, or really even throughout the semester, just hear this. Does your lifestyle reflect that you're preparing for death? Because that's what's imminent for all of you. That's what I can promise to everyone in this room. Are you pursuing something that can only lead you there, no matter how successful you are in it? Are you placing your life in the things that can only ultimately give you death? If we live in a world untethered to God, not being covenantly bound to God, we're going to covenantly bind ourselves to all the created things until death. We'll live a life of insecurity. The second thing that happens is um, the brokenness living at the center of our own lives produces the instinct to hide who we really are. Again, this is what Adam and Eve do. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for them loincloths, the beginning of verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You see, intimacy, real relationship, hinges on it. It's built on vulnerability. Because you can't know somebody unless you actually really deeply know them. And intimacy hinges on how much we open ourselves up to each other. And this is physically demonstrated in this text right here. All of a sudden they became ashamed, literally, of their inmost parts, of their most vulnerable parts. And when centered in the world, they begin to hide their most vulnerable parts. And all of a sudden, there was a separation. And they begin to hide who they were from each other. As soon as Adam and Eve became self-loving, self-centered being, they became scared to death of vulnerability. And so they created covers and they hid. And you cannot have a meaningful relationship or knowledge with one another as you hide from each other. And so now there's this inborn instinct that we all have to hide. This is why I know in this room there's a lot of besetting sin that's never been confessed. This is why you're not telling anyone about your porn addiction, guys and girls. This is why you're afraid to say what you really feel about things. You're scared to death that people think you're crazy. This is why we're so busy. Busyness is the new fig leaf of the 21st century. If you can stay busy enough, you don't have to deal with yourself. You can just fill up your calendar and hide from your heart. This is why guys' small group Bible studies are painful for like the first two semesters. Because guys can't talk about themselves at all. Girls, y'all are actually a little bit healthier in this area. (laughs) Guys' Bible studies are painful. If we can't talk about college football, we don't know what to do. This is why we're killing ourselves to make God happy, and at the same time, our religious life is primarily guilt-ridden. We're doing this stuff like having quiet times and reading our Bible and praying and going to church, not because we love Jesus, but actually so that we can avoid Him. We hide behind even things like religion and theology. Those are our fig leaves. We try to hide it from God by convincing us that we're okay. We try to hide from our friends, and we hide from ourselves that sometimes I don't even know if we know ourselves anymore. And we can't even remember that really, in a lot of ways, all of our personalities 
are just social coping mechanisms that we created a long time ago because we're all scared to death. And so we crafted this personality, whether it's an introvert or an extrovert or a jock or counterculture, whatever it is, the stereotypes we love to see in the movies, and we all kind of craft a personality with all these kind of things, and they're really just things for us to hide behind. Our relationship with God and with men and with women can have no real intimacy because we're scared to death of vulnerability. What is it that you hide under? You hide under competence. Do you hide behind being funny? Do you hide behind religious devotion? What is it that you want the world to see so that that world won't see you? And the glorious thing is that it's precisely when the light of the gospel comes in and painfully exposes our hearts that healing starts to begin. Because you are made to love and to be loved, and you are made to know people and to be known, to have somebody look into your heart and see it all and say, yeah, I love you. And I'll be here for you. And it's only in the hands of Jesus' abounding mercy that you can finally stop hiding and say, this is who I am. I don't like it. And he says, and his people together say, we know we love you. When we live that life where we're central in our world, we just hide who we are. We want the world to see everyone, any kind of personality except for who we really are. The next thing it does, it produces a life of accusation or blame shifting. Again, we see this in the text. God comes to Adam and says, um, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. They began to accuse each other, and they actually said true things in order to avoid their own responsibility. See, they actually didn't even lie in this text. They actually told the truth and actually pointed out the shortcomings of other people in order to avoid their responsibility. If we're at the center of our universe, we don't want to take responsibility for who we are. And it becomes very easy to make everyone else responsible for the pain in the world. This is the belief that everyone else is responsible for what's wrong in your relationships. And this is why Jesus gives us good Christian advice on how to deal with other people's sin. When people genuinely do wrong us. Matthew 7.3, he says, get the log out of your own eye. And then go get the speck out of your brothers. And those aren't hoops that we jump through so that you can finally get to the task of beating the crap out of somebody. This is a teaching that you actually truly have to believe. And yet you really have to begin to believe that your biggest problem in your life is you. And you can't help anybody until you get that. You'll only be helpful to people who really do have real problems if you come to them and they see you weep over your own sin. Because all of a sudden, you can't point them to yourself anymore. You can only point them to Jesus. Do you spend more time criticizing other people or grieving over your sin? What would your friends say? Have your friends seen you grieve over your sin? Or do they just know how well you know everyone else's shortcomings? Who is it that's responsible for the relational pain in your life? Like right now, take five seconds. Who are like the five people 
that drive you nuts, who brought the most pain in your life. In those five circumstances, there's one consistent pattern. For detectives here, we're looking for the consistent thing. There's something that's consistent in all five of those relationships. What could be the thing that could be consistent in each of those relational conflicts? You. You're a part of each of those relationships. That's the consistent pattern. Do you find yourself thinking here, yeah, Britton, I know that I have stuff to work out, but the things that they did or the things that you said, you just wouldn't believe. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, 3 is, he's saying, yeah, I know that about them. Do you know that about yourself? I mean, the image he's giving us is kind of crazy because he's saying, can you imagine doing an ocular procedure on somebody with a log in your eye? You desecrate somebody's face. And Jesus is saying, is until you see that your problems in your life are so much bigger than anyone else's, you can't help them. Without fail, in our marriage, the times in which I am most irritated with Elizabeth, and I'm a Christian, and so I'm going to tell you I'm irritated with my wife at times because that happens in marriage and it's reality, and if anybody tells you otherwise, they're lying. When I'm most irritated with Elizabeth is when I'm most selfish. It's usually on the heels of the ways I've sinned against her. That's when I get irritated with her. It's when I hurt her. If you're listening to this message and you're thinking about all the people that need to hear this, this is your point. And you can't think about other people right now. It produces that instinct to accuse and blame. It produces the instinct to rebel. It actually means we begin to love bad things. Paul in Romans 7 actually says, knowing the law made him want to sin. You see, we all want to believe that like Batman was right in the dark night, that the heart of man is essentially good and the felons wouldn't kill the civilians and the civilians wouldn't kill the felons on the boat if you didn't see the movie Tough Luck. <laughs> but, the, but what Scripture says is every, in Genesis 6-5, every thought of the heart of man is only evil all the time. And in fact, we love evil. And one of the areas that we probably need to consider this is that the electric eroticism in your physical relationships in your dating life might just be love of the illicit. That the love of what doing wrong just feels good and we love it. And it'll be horribly dangerous in your marriage because what you're going to find yourself doing is pushing your wife or your husband into places of perversion that are wrong, and you'll be pushing yourself privately into illicit fantasies because we love what is wrong and it is thrilling. And the rich and wonderful and mature kind of sexuality you could have in marriage will utterly confound you because what you want is you want illicit sexuality because that's what you became addicted to in your dating relationships. We love what is wrong. It produces a heart of rebellion. It produces suspicion. We believe that the other person, the other friend, or the other family member, the spouse, the girlfriend, is against you. In your relationships, you think everybody has an agenda. And you think about people in terms of allegiance, in terms of social allegiances. You're suspicious of anyone. You don't give anybody the benefit of the doubt. And my guess is, if that's the way you think, Christians confound you. Because they have no personal agenda. They have the agenda of Jesus. And so when somebody comes in and is honest and has no agenda, you don't know how to be suspicious. But you suspect everybody. And you're afraid of marriage, maybe. 
and maybe you're afraid of building a life with someone, and so you intend to enter into that relationship with a plan B. Again, you're preparing for divorce. If you're willing to be sexual with someone who is not your spouse before you enter into marriage, then even if that's the person that you've ended up marrying, you have demonstrated to each other a willingness to be sexual with someone who is not your spouse. And it takes time to rebuild that trust. It's not impossible, but it takes time. Do you want that suspicion to be the foundation of your marriage? You know, the list is hard and it keeps going to anxiety, pettiness. It can keep going on. But this is really the point. Whatever we live in reference to, whatever we cling to, and whatever we hope, rest in, strive for, if it's anything that provides that's not the Creator, then it is created and it provides no permanence. And the only natural lifestyle that you will live is the one we just described, one full of insecurity, of blame-shifting, angry, petty facades. And the reason why is because we have exchanged the worship of the Creator for the created thing. So then, what is the answer? This is a two-part sermon, and you kind of have to come back next week, unfortunately. How do we remedy this kind of stuff? This is kind of a glimpse, because it seems omnipresent in our lives. It seems like I... This is no shot at the freshmen, because we've all been freshmen. It seems like I just described the freshman experience, like insecure, angry, scared to death socially... Like, I love y'all freshmen. We've all been there. This is the most insecure place in the world. What can we do to remedy this? To fix the fact that the predominating driving relational force, even our most altruistic-seeming decisions, underneath it all is just a heart in love with itself. And the story that we live is a story about me primarily and the best things in my life. Love and Jesus and family and lovers and friends are still just supporting actors in the story of me. What can we do about that? This is the approach of Bible, and this is what we'll look at next week. What if we can't do anything? What if our heart is actually completely turned in on itself? And what if the answer is, despite our rejection of God, He chooses to be committed to us? In spite of our dismissal of Him, He runs after us. In spite of our defensive fronts, he invades us. In spite of the fact that, frankly, he doesn't mean much to us most of the time, we mean the world to him. It's not a cheap journey for him to chase us down, to recover us, to restore us, to turn us to him, so that he can say to us, listen, your identity, it can't be in these things because they don't give you anything. Your identity is this, I am the king, and you're my son, and you're my daughter. And all that I have is yours. It's not an easy work of redemption. Even for the Creator, the person who spoke creation to being, He had to give His life. Jesus had to die because somebody had to die for the manner in which we rejected God. But Jesus says, I'll die so that you don't have to. What if the answer to all these problems was not praying, What can I do? Lord, help me do better. What if the answer was God speaking to us and Him saying, look what I've done. I'm committed to restoring you. I see your rebellion. I know you don't like me. I know you dismiss me. I know you don't understand me. And I know you build your life on ludicrous, silly things. But I made a covenant with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. What if the answer to relational rupture 
to the insecurity and to the fear and to the anger that predominates our life? What if the answer was not our commitment to turn it around, but a promise of covenant love by God to die for us so that we could live and have life abundantly? That's what we're going to look at next week, so please come back.